After marking hymn number 218, as Brother Harold had asked us to do, might we take a moment and again be so appreciative of the great God of heaven who has permitted us to assemble today like this with the measure of health that we have, the opportunity to lift our voices together in song, to pray collectively as we have done, to encourage, fellowship, and edify one another. What better place can we think of to be on a beautiful Sunday morning than a place like this? As we consider that this particular portion of our service, the opportunity to look into the Word of God and to be lifted up and challenged by some of the things found therein, we turn this morning, as you might have noted in the reading, to a singular text found in verse 10 of Proverbs 7. In that very heart of the Old Testament, we find a reference to a rather remarkable phrase, and it is the one I chose for the title of the lesson today, the attire of an harlot. We understand well that there could be much discussed about the nature of that verse alone, but as we will take a specific approach to it this morning, some introductory thoughts, I'm convinced, might be well to, to our benefit. And so it is to that particular aspect I bring your attention to this slide. All of us would readily concur that every single topic and subject addressed in the Word of God is vital. It is essential. For it is still the case, isn't it, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The closing two verses of 2 Timothy 3. Of particular note on that occasion might be that that Word of God, the holy inspired Scriptures, are those things that allow you and me to be approved before God when we bring our lives into compliance with the things taught therein. It is not the case that intentions alone will suffice, nor is it the case that other approaches to the Scriptures. God did he not say, Jesus himself in Luke 11, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. To hear it alone is not adequate to bring us into open compliance with a beautiful statement of what God would have us to know. With regard to that verse then in Proverbs 7, the attire, we are looking then, at least in our consideration today, at clothing. Clothing that you and I might choose to wear, clothing that encovers our bodies, clothing that we appreciate and view from day by day upon those who are our neighbors, our friends, our other associates. A few introductory thoughts about that clothing, though, would be to notice that clothing is a significant resource, isn't it? It requires money on my part and yours to procure and obtain those things. Perhaps if one's talented enough, you can make your own, but still, there's the cloth that has to be bought, the thread that has to be obtained. Clothing itself is, in fact, something that demands resources upon our part, isn't it? But not only that. The clothing that you and I choose to wear is a direct reflection of the character of our heart. We'll substantiate that on a number of occasions in the lesson that follows, but might we already note it is a direct reflection of what is the condition of our heart and thus where we shall stand before God relative to being satisfied by Him that is acceptable to Him. And perhaps also finally, since clothing is discussed in the Bible, were there no other reason than that, it would be important for us to appreciate what the Scriptures teach concerning that subject and to, with all earnestness, seek to implement those things into our life with utter haste. That latter point does lead me to a qualification. 
a, a condition, if you will. One of the most tempting things with regard to any type of behavior is to seek to justify ourselves and to rationalize our own approach to things. It is so very tempting. However, in the degree of eternal importance and in the desire to be righteous, we must, with all vitality, set aside that tendency and temptation to justify ourselves and to honestly ask, what does the Bible say? What does it teach? And what does it reflect about my attitude toward what I'm wearing? With those things said, might I suggest five lessons as we look at various texts in the Bible this morning, five lessons that will be very useful, I'm convinced, because again, God has revealed them to us to help us gauge and to judge where we stand relative to the attire that we choose to wear. Perhaps in order to begin, what is the purpose of clothing? And this will be our opening lesson of the sermon this morning. I believe no one would argue, question, or even have any specific notion to, to disagree with the fact the purpose of clothing is to cover the body. We go all the way back nearly to the very dawn of time. Adam and Eve in that pristine position in which they found themselves in Genesis chapter 2 was one that was absolutely innocent, pure, and sinless in every regard. Sin had not entered the human family on that occasion. And the closing verse of Genesis chapter 2, specifically verse 25, says that the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. On that occasion, they wore no clothes. However, due to the fact sin had not entered into the world, they were in this innocent, sinless state. The human body was the perfect and wonderful thing that God had fashioned. It was glorious for the purpose for which God had made it. There was nothing disgraceful or ashamed about it. However, in the very next verse, things take a dramatic turn for the worse. In Genesis 3 verse 1, the subtle tempter appears before Mother Eve and she succumbs to the temptation, gives unto Adam and he does the same. In verse number 7, we find the next reference to clothing in the Bible. Whereas in verse 25 of chapter 2, they were not clothed at all and yet were unashamed. In chapter 3 verse 7 it says, They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They now understood that it was an inappropriate and disgraceful thing to not conceal, to reveal, if you please, the human body and the various portions of secrecy that should be thereof. They understood that. Isn't it interesting that between chapter 2 verse 25 and chapter 3 verse 7, God did not come to them and say, cover up yourself. They reached that conclusion from the realization of the sinfulness of the character of revealing the human body. Sin brought that into the world and it hasn't changed. We see then the nature that they proceeded to make some kind of clothing to conceal, to cover the human body. The nature of that clothing helps us see in Adam and Eve that they perceived it a shameful thing to not cover that body. They perceived it an inappropriate thing to in fact leave it uncovered. So they sewed these fig leaves together to make these aprons as the King James Version will read it. As we consider the nature of that, isn't it an odd thing today? when one appreciates the discount stores and the various places in which one can buy clothing, 
that the whole purpose of clothing is to cover the body, and yet, isn't it incredibly ironic that much of the clothing that can be purpose that can be purchased specifically does not cover the parts of the body that are supposed to be covered? Shouldn't we find that oddly ironic? The purpose of clothing to cover the body, and yet the clothing that so often can be purchased leaves the body woefully revealed. That begs the very question of the purpose of purchasing that clothing to start with. Shouldn't we think so? But in fact, looking a little bit further, if that be our first lesson, that the purpose of clothing is to cover or conceal the parts of the body that ought to be concealed, might we look at a second lesson for us to consider this morning having to do with that matter to which we referred a bit earlier, that the clothing that is chosen to be worn speaks volumes about the nature of the individual who's wearing it. Of that we cannot argue. For it, in fact, is no different than, for instance, the language. The language you and I choose to speak speaks volumes about what's in the heart. Didn't the Lord say in Matthew 15 that that which comes out of the mouth started in the heart? So if it's not in the heart, it would never have emanated from the mouth. And might we suggest that that same heart and that same passage conceals evil thoughts, it conceals other things that when they ultimately have their fruition, the Lord said they started in the heart. And so if it is the case that you or I wear sinful, inappropriate clothing, it started in the heart. The problem may be a clothing problem, but at first it was a heart problem, and it continues to be so. And thus, we ought to give some thought in this second part of the lesson to the fact that clothing speaks volumes about what's in my heart and what is in yours. I've listed some things for your consideration that amplify from the scriptural standpoint that clothing does convey a sentiment and an idea. It indicates, if you will, the nature of what a person is all about. In Joel 1 verse 8, in that ancient day of the long ago when the people of that time were beset by this terrible plague of locusts. In that opening chapter, verse number 8, sentence is made relative to the fact that they were to put on sackcloth as a direct token of the lamentation they felt. Notice the sackcloth went hand in hand with what they were supposed to feel and appreciate relative to the distress they were under. The clothing signified something. Same occurred in Nehemiah chapter 1. All of that perhaps leads us to see that that isn't the only place in the Holy Scriptures where one's clothing indicates a manner of life. It indicates a thought of the heart. It indicates a disposition of mind. Might we remember John the Baptizer? We well remember that this was a rugged character. As he labored in the wilderness area of Judea and there baptized in the Jordan, isn't it interesting in Matthew 3 verse 4 that he wore a leathern girdle and he also had about him this camel's hair? Everyone knew when they came to John, he was an unapologetic, uncompromising preacher of the truth. He didn't bend the way of what he taught just to satisfy and tickle the ears of those who listened. He preached repentance, he preached confession, he preached baptism. And those who heard, sometimes they liked it and sometimes they didn't. But his clothing by itself was an emblematic symbol of the fact that God's word is powerful, it's to the point, and it is not to be compromised. 
Part of the fact which helped convince those of that matter was what he wore and what he ate. We might remember he was also a rather unorthodox eater of that day, wasn't he? Locusts and wild honey. But to make those points, doesn't that help us see that even later Jesus referred to John in Matthew chapter 11? He said, what went ye out for to see? A man in soft clothing? John didn't wear soft clothing. That's for princes and kings and others that rest in their clothed houses and their sealed paneled palaces. John wasn't that type of person. I make that statement to help us see clothing indicated something. Might we also appreciate the fact that it indicates something today. By the clothes that you and I choose to wear, it is a direct reflection of the kind of person we are. It's a direct reflection of what, in fact, dwells within my heart and that dwells within yours. Just a few highlights might be in order. That individual who perhaps chooses to expend exorbitantly on clothing indicates rather directly that that person is a worshiper of the God of materialism. When you go and spend a ridiculous amount of money for clothing that you could buy somewhere else far less expensively and that accomplishes the same covering of the body, it's a wastefulness in money. It is that which, in fact, indicates the person has a desire to stand to prove maybe before others, to stand in a way that is a social reflection of who or what he wishes or she wishes to be. At least the clothing would directly indicate so, wouldn't it? But in the second place, and on the other hand, that person who dresses humbly, but yet completely and adequately covers the body in an appropriate way, it indicates a heart interested in purity, interested in the holiness with which God desires that body to be covered, and a heart that's interested in not leading others off into the realms of wandering minds and temptation. In fact, doesn't clothing say all of that and then some? What, on the other hand, about the person who chooses to dress provocatively, leaving various portions of either the upper or lower body scantily clad, whether by clothing that is practically transparent, fits so tightly that it conceals nothing, or whether one chooses to simply wear clothing that doesn't cover it in any way. It indicates a heart desiring to catch the attention of somebody else, and it's not God. Desiring to, in fact, be chased, C-H-S-E-D, at least in thought by those who watch. That's the kind of thing that, that clothing indicates. Doesn't, again, our clothing speak volumes about what really is in our heart. The kind of person that we really are wanting to be. May I ask some leading questions? In Proverbs 7, verse 10, that verse that Joey read earlier, it made a, a special reference to the attire of an harlot. There is clothing, my friend, that's good for, to be worn by nobody but a prostitute. Surely we wouldn't want to be guilty of wearing such. And yet there is the attire of an harlot. Many in our world choose to wear it. Oh, they're not prostitutes by profession, but by the clothing they wear, they just as well be. It's a shame. It's an absolute affront to the nature of the glory to be embodied in the human frame to wear the attire of an harlot. Might we note also some good questions? And perhaps to parents especially, but maybe more so to fathers. Fathers, do you want your little girl to be ogled over by boys who watch the scantily clad body given the clothing that she might choose to wear? 
And let me assure you, the boys are watching. You take a hormone rage, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, and even a little older, and that pretty little innocent girl prancing around school, half dressed. Don't you think the boys are watching? And don't you think their minds wander in places they ought not be? Do you want your girl looked at that way? Not only that, as one imagines the other ways in which she can be looked upon, is any wonder that rape is rampant? For, and oftentimes I am not in any sense defending the men who do such things, but when the temptation has been directly placed before them, at least an ounce of the blame can be placed somewhere else, though perhaps thousand tons of it with the man. It is something to be seriously considered. The clothing that we wear can impact the statements and can impact the reactions of others. When a mentally unstable man allows his mind to wander by virtue of the thoughts that have begun by virtue of a scantily clad lady, where will those thoughts lead? We don't want to even think about it. We don't want our little girls dressed that way. And boys, it's not to say that we can excuse them either. For a boy with a torso displayed can also lead to inappropriate thoughts in a young girl. Thoughts that in fact ought not cross her mind either. Those kinds of ideas challenge us ever to understand that clothing speaks volumes and it's exceedingly important for God has addressed it. But that lesson perhaps leads us to the next conclusion that already no doubt has crossed your mind and mine. In light of these two initial remarks, the third lesson, some clothing by God is unacceptable. That a tire of an harlot would fall under that category, wouldn't it? Clothing that in fact is unacceptable. God set the standard for that in the early part of the Bible, didn't he? We mentioned earlier that Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they made themselves aprons. The Hebrew word that's there translated aprons means girdle, belt, something along that line. Might we notice that this loin covering that they made was insufficient to cover their bodies by the very decree of God. For notice, 14 verses later, God makes them some other clothes. What they chose to clothe themselves with in this loin covering, this apron, if you will, was insufficient by the standards of heaven. God thus made them other clothes. The very text reads, coats of skins, Genesis 3, verse 21. That's easily for us to appreciate then that that initial covering they had made, the clothing that they chose to make for themselves was not adequate. God had to make something else. This coats of skins, the word coat, is a word that means a tunic. It means, in fact, a long shirt-like garment. What does that indicate? What they originally had chosen to cover some portion of their loin area had left, it would seem, the upper body completely uncovered, and furthermore, perhaps even portions of the lower body insufficiently covered. God made a long shirt-like tunic a long garment to sufficiently cover this body, and he did it not out of something transparent. He made it out of coats that were made of animal skins. We're beginning to gain a picture, aren't we, about the earnestness and seriousness that goes along with an improperly clad body. As God made this clothing, these coats of skins, isn't it interesting that that leads us to directly notice 
then what about when the upper part of the body is not concealed? This long shirt-like garment. We understand that most ladies seem to appreciate some need to cover at least the major part of the upper part of their body, but what about the men? Notice there is a plural pronoun used here. God clothed them. It wasn't just Eve. Adam's upper part of his body was just as covered as hers. Men, might we ever understand, we are not given the liberty by God to display our bodies as savage beasts like so much of the world seems to wish to do. A man who removes his shirt to work in a field, he may be hot. That's no excuse. We understand the need to conceal and cover our bodies as the ladies need to do for themselves. This is not an idle thought, is it? And it's not something to be taken lightly. The attire of an harlot is a serious issue indeed. As we've looked at three brief lessons, might we also turn our attention then to ask, if there was clothing that was inappropriate in the days of Adam and Eve, does it not stand to reason that there no doubt is much in the way of clothing that is unacceptable still today? Any clothing that doesn't meet the things that we have learned today in terms of lessons is not substantiable by the Word of God. Let's try to be more specific. As we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, we find a text in the heart of the New Testament that reminds us about some inspired statements from the pen of the Apostle Paul. I'd like to read verse number 9 of that chapter. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. It's easy to appreciate, isn't it, that Paul first and foremost spoke about an individual, a lady in this case, whose heart was desiring to be a godly influence and a godly lady, professing the whole nature of righteousness before others as well as before God. But in the specifics of approaching that, what she chooses to wear has a dramatic impact on the degree of accomplishment of that, doesn't it? In like manner also that women adorn themselves. There's that verb adorn. To put on, to choose to wear. Notice the kind of apparel. Modest apparel. That word in the Greek identifies a dress that's characterized by modesty, by respectability, and by appropriateness. Might we pause and make a comment? Dress that is appropriate. Dress that is respectable. Who determines whether it's respectable? Might we say it isn't the world. The world will almost allow you to wear nothing at all if that's what you'd like to do. It's clear that who determines respectability in terms of clothing is God. She should wear clothes that God would decree as modest. Clothes that God would decree as respectable. Clothes that God would decree as that which would be appropriate. Not what the world would decree. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Maybe that point should be driven home for us as we contemplate the thoroughness and power of that word modest. But notice, Paul wasn't finished. For he said in the prepositional phrase, with shamefacedness. That word shamefacedness again means either reverence or modesty. 
It's almost as though he's amplified what he's just said. He's already mentioned modest apparel. Now he says with shamefacedness, thus amplifying the notion of modesty again. And finally, with sobriety. It means with soundness of mind, self-control, with a degree of making a proper and judicious choice of what clothing is appropriate in the eyes of heaven. Our choice ought not be based on what's popular in the community or what's popular at school or what's popular at the workplace. That's irrelevant. For wouldn't it be awful to lose our soul in hell because we chose to wear what others seem to like at work? That's not going to make any difference on the day of judgment. In fact, if we're choosing to like it, and we just read from James that the world, in fact, is the enemy of God, if we're making our choices based on that, we have aligned ourselves as the enemy of God, haven't we? Our clothing is vitally important, and it's vitally essential. We find in this text, then, a direct commandment from the Holy Spirit that women, whether in worship or not, ought to choose to wear that clothing that's modest, that's respectable, that's appropriate in the eyes of God. And might we notice, as we have seen in other extensions of these passages, the men are not exempt, for as we learn in 1 Corinthians, we can't set an example of righteousness and choose to live and wear clothing that would be much like a male prostitute. That won't work any better than it will for the ladies. We each stand under the realization of the thoroughness of God's command, don't we? Noting the attire of an harlot is an eternally serious matter, isn't it? But perhaps one final thought in regard to the latter part of that same screen. That leads us back to, in some senses, where we began the lesson. We proceed to a discount store, or we proceed to some other place that sells clothing. And what we see, perhaps, on many of the racks... Clothing that does not conceal sufficiently, does not conceal adequately. In fact, we noted earlier the first thing to notice about clothing is its purpose is to cover the body. If you and I desire to dress modestly, as commanded in 1 Timothy 2.9, we are, should not be of a mindset to walk as closely to the line of immodesty as we can and still think that we're modest. Modesty doesn't work that way. We should desire to be safely in the friendly confines of approval before God with modesty, not trying to walk a fine line of being on the verge of immodesty, but not quite immodest. That would betray a mind that doesn't lift God's word as high as it should. We ought not be trying to push the boundary of, of immodesty. We should desire with all the thoroughness and work of our heart to live safely and conservatively wearing what God would be happy to condone and what he'd be happy to approve. And that does lead us to the fifth and last comment or lesson for this morning. Namely, some specifics about then tying these ideas together. What would constitute this attire of an harlot? What would constitute this clothing that would be inappropriate? Might we say, in light of what we said earlier, any clothing that does not sufficiently cover the body would not be appropriate. And when we say sufficiently cover the body, again, we're not trying to walk as nearly to the line of immodesty as we can. We're trying to please God to not offer any opportunity to lead others astray. We're not desiring to cause their minds to wander into places that ought not wander. 
In fact, some New Testament commandments to that end would be these. In Romans 14, 21, Paul, referring to himself, said, I will present no offense to others. None. Be that in regard to the liquids that he drank, the foods that he ate, anything else. If you and I love the souls of men and women, those that are Christians, those that are not, if we love their souls and want them to come to know the goodness of God, should we wear before them something that would cause impure thoughts to cross their mind, that would cause inappropriate things to dwell in their thinking? Well, of course not. Love wouldn't let that happen. But in the second place, in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, might we also remember there, Paul even heightened that statement we had previously noted from Romans 14. Here as he made reference to his disposition toward others as well as what ours must be, he made note no stumbling blocks to be presented before others. That's an absolute statement. If I choose to wear something that causes the thoughts of others to be impure, that causes their mind to think upon things that are unrighteous and ungodly, and think upon things that in fact are directly opposed to heaven's will for purity, I have been a contributor to their sin. I have been a part of it. I have aided and encouraged it. In the words of law, I have aided and abetted it. Surely God will count me guilty of such a thing. Might we think seriously about what we choose to wear? we may well be guilty of causing somebody else to sin. That kind of idea leads us to conclude from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Paul chose to live in a way where he could serve as an example to others. Might we ask this, do you and I choose to live that way? Could it be the case we could with a straight face pronounce to anybody, you feel free to dress like I do and God will be happy? That should be the way we choose our attire to wear, isn't it? An example of purity, holiness, righteousness, a mind attuned to things spiritual in character. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, may I suggest, also found in chapter 6 of that same book, verses 17 and following, that God made the human body a very special, special thing. It is not, of course, to be worshipped as He is, but it is to be respected. If I choose to dress inappropriately, scantily, to dress in a fashion that in fact means I'm wearing the attire of an harlot, I am disgracing my body. I am in fact dishonoring it, and as such I'm leading others to do the same. That is not appropriate behavior. The human body, again, not to be worshipped, but it is to be respected. We should appreciate it is the creation of God. And as such, it is to be honored for it is the dwelling place of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16, and it should be treated in a way that behooves the character that God gave it. If I dress in ways that lead to the kind of thoughts we discussed earlier, that's an insult to the body. It is, in fact, a rather tragic insult to it. Our study this morning, as we've looked at these five points concerning the attire of an harlot, lead us to conclude our lesson by summarizing the things we've noted. Clothing is very, very important. Its purpose is to cover the body. That point being simply made leads us to appreciate from the text that we've studied that the clothing we choose to wear speaks volumes about what really is in our heart.
Furthermore, some clothing is inappropriate and unacceptable to God. God identified in the fourth place in 1 Timothy 2 verse 9 the impressive need for modesty, sobriety, and shamefacedness. And then finally, we've seen most recently that that clothing, any clothing, that does not fulfill these four things that we've described would be inappropriate. It'd be clothing that ought to have no place in my wardrobe and in yours. May we encourage then as older ones, our youngsters, to dress in a proper fashion. They no doubt face a host of peer pressure because the vast majority of those in their schools will not heed this. They are not aware of it or choose to willfully ignore it. Perhaps their parents have never thought about it, but all that's beside the point. We know better. We know what God commands. And in the love for our children and in the interest of encouraging a holy society, we should strive to dress in a way that would be becoming of our influence for Christianity. This morning, are you a Christian? Have you had your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb? If we could be of assistance in aiding that to take place today, the power is not in me. It is not in our eldership. It's not in any human sitting within the confines of this structure. The power is in the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He went on to say, those in terms of repentance were commanded to do this. Nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. He went on to then command in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, that if you do not confess me, I'll deny you before heaven. Finally, Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. This morning, if you haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins, we need to take care of that today. You've heard the word, respond in love to it. If you have become a Christian, but you no longer are a faithful one, come back to that first love. We could pray with you, for you, God's promise to hear upon your repentance. If we could be of assistance to you today in any of these ways, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?